0: As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be here at the end of Matthew in chapter 28. We're just picking up where we left off last week, Matthew chapter 28, and before we we read, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, you've told us that all Scripture is breathed out by you, that what we're about to hear here is from your very mouth, and these things are useful and profitable to us for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Would you help us now to be wise hearers of these things? By your Spirit, would you open our ears to listen to Jesus here? that we would believe and be moved by your word. Do this now in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew in chapter 28. Uh, I'll begin here in verse 10, catching the, the end of the account there and, and carry us to the end of the chapter, end of the book. So this is Matthew in chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there you will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Word of God. Now, last week, if you were here, it was Easter Sunday, and we talked about what's happened just a bit earlier in this scene. We looked at the stone of witness just outside of what is now the, the empty tomb because Jesus is alive. We know that, that the Gospels in many, many ways are building up to that event, the, the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. But in building to that, the writers don't just stop there at the resurrection, So it's not as if after Jesus is resurrected, the disciples all get together and go, we did it, guys. We did it. Cheers and high fives all around. Boy, people are going to write about this and talk about this for centuries. You know, death is dead. The big red ribbon tape across the finish line of the marathon has been broken. And now the clock stops and we all drink our Gatorade because things are done. It's not that the resurrection is the last straw here. There is work left to be finished. Now, having said that, let me be clear about something. Some of Jesus' work is finished, entirely done. In fact, he said those very words on the cross and I quote, it is finished. It's over. It's done. Mm -hmm. By this, he means that his work on the cross particularly is done. The atonement for sin, the, the payment, the hell to pay, the wrath of God against sin, and the satisfaction for that is done, which means that the guilt of all the sin of all believers has now all been laid on Christ and it is done that's what Paul is drawing off of when he says to the Romans that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus it's not because we're still trying it's because that condemnation is finished by what Jesus has already done on the cross The finished work, the complete work of Jesus on the cross is what saves us. So for everyone, everyone who puts faith in Jesus, we then don't add one drop to our own salvation by anything we do or don't do. You know, this is a moment where there is a red tape across the finish line that's now been broken, and we can say, he did it, guys. You know, cheers and high-fives all all around. Let's pull out the Gatorade because there is no more need to fear judgment for the believer. Because even though I continue to sin, Christ has paid for that sin. He is now my righteousness, your righteousness, if you're a believer in Jesus. That work is done. And if that's all, that Jesus came to do, well, what I read would just be the last page of the Bible. The end. Everything that Jesus came to do is done, but that's not the case. Instead, while some of Jesus' work is completely done, even now, as the Gospel of Matthew is coming to a, a close, we can hear the sort of forward lean in things. We're sort of moving ahead. While much of Jesus' work is finished, there's an aspect, many parts of it, that are yet to be finished or have even just begun. So Jesus doesn't just immediately scoop up his disciples and and haul them off with him when he returns to the Father. Jesus doesn't just save believers and, you know, zap us straight off to heaven. He, he, he doesn't even tell us to just sit and wait till he returns, that it's his work yet to be finished, not ours. Jesus' work now, here at the end, is to send these people on mission. And it's a big one. Not quite Mission impossible. You know, hear a little m- m- music, not quite Mission Impossible, it's possible. It's a possible mission. There's a big mission with a lot of obstacles. Before the mission has even begun, we can already see in this text some of the barriers they're facing, some of the things that are happening from, from the outside against them. They're facing things like lies and bribery and corruption of money and power, people pushing against them, trying to keep things down. There's also barriers that come from the inside, things like fear and doubt and hesitation, And those sorts of barriers are just the beginning as well. They'll become more difficult as they start to move into the days recorded in the book of Acts. But none of this is going to shake the mission that Jesus has given his people. If you look here, the mission that Jesus gives his followers here on these last pages or words in Matthew, the mission is not make peace. It's not the mission. The mission is not make noise, either. Make a big hubbub and start start up things. Nor is it make a way. The mission is make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the mission of Jesus' disciples, that they themselves would make disciples. Now, we need to ask ourselves... Are we a disciple-making people? Are we a disciple-making people? Because the mission that Jesus has just given to these 11 disciples has become the mission of every Christian as well. So is that true of us? Is it true of you? That you you are making disciples. In order to wrestle with this question, we need to ask three big questions to help us unpack it. The questions that we'll look at today are these. One, what is a disciple? Two, how do we make disciples? And three, why do we make disciples? What's a disciple? How do we make disciples? And why do we make disciples? Let's look at the first of those. What is a disciple? That's a word we often hear. It gets thrown around in Christian culture a lot. What actually is a disciple? Some people think, you know, disciple is basically the same thing as Christian, that those two terms are are, are kind of synonymous and they mean the same thing. And, And they're similar, but it's not true that they mean the same thing. They have different emphases. The word disciple literally means learner or pupil or trainee. A disciple is a committed student of his teacher. Jesus talks about this in many places. I'll just mention one, just so we can take a peek at it. In Luke chapter 6, he says this in verse, let me find it, verse, verse 40. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So you hear the dynamic there between disciple and teacher so a christian then is always under jesus who's the ultimate master the ultimate teacher and we never outgrow jesus of course but we do want to in some sense in some way become like him that the the disciple when he's trained will be like his his teacher the main reason for this is because jesus himself is not going to directly teach most Christians, right? Jesus here is about to ascend back to the Father, so he makes his current disciples—the one whom with he's he spent all this time—he makes them these guys who are still learners, they're still disciples themselves in some sense. He turns them into teachers of the next disciples, and the content of their teaching is not mainly education. Not mainly education, at least not in the way that we think tend to think about education. They're not teaching doctrines or books. Those things are good. We love them. There's an important place for that. But discipleship's not mainly about that. Discipleship doesn't just learn the principles of faith. Discipleship teaches the principles Practice of faith. You can hear it at the very end of the text that we have today in in verse 20, where Jesus says, teaching them, teaching them what? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Not teaching them the content of what I've commanded. Teach them how to observe that, how to live this out, which means discipleship doesn't mainly happen in a classroom, in learning how to think. Discipleship is more like a workshop where you learn how to build stuff. It's learning learning a craft, a skill, an art, the art of godliness. So it would be better for us to think about disciples less as students and more as, like, an apprentice. Discipleship is less about teaching as it is about training. So if we were were training how to be a potter, how to make, you know, the cool little clay pots that you sometimes see downtown, if I were training how to be a potter, I'd have to actually get my hands on the clay. Get my foot on the wheel, get the clay underneath my fingernails in order to learn how to do that. And it's the same with Christian discipleship. This is a sort of hands-on experience. Uh, uh, Paul talks about this in a similar way as this sort of practice in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he compares discipleship uh, to the training that we, we might do in a gym, like lifting weights. This is in 1 Timothy chapter chapter 4. He says at the end of verse 7, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So you can hear here that when Paul's speaking about this training, this sort of discipleship that he's talking about in the sense of building one's spiritual muscles, if we had to define discipleship then, this would be my attempt at defining what it means to make disciples. Making disciples is training others in the art and skill of godliness. training others in the art and skill of godliness. Which means that we are not just saved by Jesus. We are that. Praise God for that. But part of our salvation from sin is now to teach us to learn to live like Jesus. So discipleship doesn't just tell us that we're supposed to be strong and take courage. It trains us how. Discipleship doesn't just tell you to search and know the scriptures. It trains you how. Discipleship doesn't just tell you that you are to put uh, sin to death in the deeds of the body. It trains us how. This sort of training in discipleship cannot come at least not fully training and discipleship cannot come through sermons. You're not being discipled right now. It also cannot come not fully through Sunday school. It can't come through books, through videos as much as those things may be good. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples at the end, go therefore and give people resources and articles and conferences on discipleship. He says You go, and you make disciples. I want you to train people in godliness, in this sort of life-on-life sort of thing. Not everyone is called to teach or preach, but it is the mission of every Christian, every Christian, to make and train disciples. So now, how do we do it? We've come to our second question. How? How do we make disciples? Indulge me in a moment of grammar, nerdiness here. Okay? In Jesus' final words here in Matthew, he only gives one command. If you look at his final sentences in verses 18, 19, and, and 20, he only gives one actual command or, or imperative. The only imperative is make disciples. But there are three participles, Uh, participles are uh, words that often end in the ing form, that are attached to the main imperative of making disciples. They sort of hang off of making disciples. Those three participles, you'll find them in verses 19 and 20, are going, baptizing, and teaching. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And that, I think, helps us see how we are to make disciples. Let's look at each of these one at a time. Going, He said, where is that? Verse uh, 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, this going is to extend to all nations, he says, which does not mean that every single Christian is called to be a foreign missionary. Okay, some are. Maybe even some some of us are, perhaps. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. By, by saying this is to go make disciples of all nations, he's showing the scope that this, this call to discipleship goes out to all of the world without limit. And, and so, you know, whether it's uh, on the other side of the globe or here, if, as we might say in the Titanic, near, far, wherever you are, whatever the case, there's to be going. This element of going means there is specific intention to do it. That's why the go sounds like part of the command. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So some people, you may have heard this already, some people reduce this word go to, to, to mean as you are going along. Some people pitch it that way, as if you know we're just making disciples sort of accidentally as we go about our daily business, that somehow discipleship is just happening as we go. And that's a mistake, It's a mistake to think about it that way. You know, it would be silly to think that I could teach someone to play, say, the saxophone just by playing the saxophone around them might be nice, they maybe learn a few things, but they're not really going to play, learn to play the saxophone just by being near me while I play. So why then would we think we could teach someone the skills of godliness just by being godly around them? To actually make disciples, to train disciples, there must be intention to go and do it. that's one, there's going, but then there's also, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that every single one of us is going to be baptizing folks, sprinkle, dunk, what have you. The point of this is that there are ones who are are newly, who are baptized, who are newly part of the covenant community of God's people, whether because they're newborns or are older and have become newborn into the faith, those people are in particular need of training in faithfulness. So many, maybe even most, I don't know, many older believers still need training and discipleship too. But this piece about baptism Highlights that we're to give special focus and attention to training new and younger believers in these things so that our children and, and converts learn what it means to live by faith. And in light of this, let me just give a quick word to parents and speak it to myself as well. I know raising kids can feel like an endless cycle of laundry, and dishes, and cleaning up spills, and wiping noses, and know what that is like, let me encourage you that in the midst of all of those things, you can be training little disciples that you would be part of fulfilling the very mission of Jesus under the roof of your own home. Do not lose sight of that. Do not let yourself believe that your days are hollow just because they feel routine. You know, parenting is is full of possibility that we would be raising young men and women who are faithful, fervent, lovers of Jesus, who would grow to be skilled in the art of godliness. Don't let that slip by. The last, third piece that is helpful in knowing how to do this is the word teaching, verse 20. Teaching them To observe all that I have commanded you. There's a presumption in this one that that these teachers, these disciple makers, these teachers have been taught or made into disciples first. That that they have been given something that they can now pass on. Because you, you cannot train someone in something that you do not yourself know. You know, you can't, you can't be a piano teacher unless you're first a piano player. And, and there's just no way to shortcut around this. You know, we can't get these sorts of things from, from a YouTube channel. We can't get them from the share button on social medias. You know, this has to be very personal, one-to-one. Jesus' teaching, don't get me wrong, his teaching is universal. Unchanging, It applies all over the globe, throughout all time. It's like the notes, the keys on a piano. Those keys stay the same, but the actual training needs to be applied personally, tailored to the person who is being discipled. Because, you know, if someone hears me try to play the piano... If I ever cringe to think about trying around you, Rebecca, you're an expert. But if I were to try, if someone were to hear me, she'd be able to correct what I'm doing, hone some of my skills, my notes, my rhythm, my tone. I can't have that from the other side of a screen. Someone personally must engage with that. We don't just learn by absorbing or listening to others do the thing. You know, Jesus' disciples heard him pray thousands of times. His disciples heard him pray thousands of times, and yet they still asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. So if someone were to ask that of you, teach me to pray what would you say? How would you teach them? Maybe you might start by saying, well, fold your hands, close your eyes. Those things are fine, of course, but neither one of those things is in the Scripture. Then what? How would you teach them? Or more importantly, how have you been taught to pray? Maybe you've never been trained how to pray at all. That's the case for far too many Christians. And it's unnerving to think about it then. You know, the realization of big gaping holes in our own training might then start to make us feel unsettled. Because now I I, I might worry that I'm somehow missing or failing in this mission of Jesus. You know, we might wonder, how am I supposed to teach others things that I have never been taught? Now, that's a good and honest question. And while that's a good question, you know, the fear of those things can lead to a sinful response. So some people uh, might then lean into blame. No one taught me, this is not my fault. Others might lean into faking it. If I don't know how to do it, fake it till you make it, make it up as you go, and just tell people whatever you think is best. Some people try to sidestep the issue. I don't know how to do it, so I'm going to outsource it, and I'm going to bring people to church for other people to disciple. Or some people then just demean the whole thing, you know, scoff at this idea of Christian training as if it's something that's not that really important. Those sorts of things really get us nowhere. And they undercut the mission of Jesus, that we would all go and make disciples. You know, suppose that Let's suppose for just a moment that Jesus' mission was go and teach people how to swim. I don't know why that would be the mission, but let's just assume that for a moment. If he said, go, teach people how to swim. And I think, okay, well, I don't really know how to swim because I've never been taught. Well, it does me no good then to blame, to fake it, to sidestep it, to demean it. If I do those things, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to end up with someone drowning in the process. You know, the only solution in trying to fulfill that mission is that I learn how to swim myself. I'm going to have to find someone who's a proficient swimmer and go up to them and say... I don't know how to do this. Will you teach me? You know, we have to to take a similar approach. If we see gaps in our Christian discipleship, we have to then look in our own spheres of influence for someone around us who is proficient in godly wisdom. And then take the initiative to to go to them and say, I don't know how to do this. Will you teach me? And that is not easy. It's going to require a lot of humbleness to do that. But humbleness is a step in the right direction. We cannot be trained in holiness unless we're first humbled to be able to admit what we do not know. That's how we're to go about this. Let's look at the third and final question. Why? Why make disciples? You know, I hope, I hope by now you can see the immense value in disciple-making. You no, know, it is it is truly life-changing to be taught how to pray, how to fast, how to serve, to be taught how to lament and how to praise, to be taught how to make war with Satan and to make war on our own sin, to be taught how to study the Word of God, how to read the Word of God, how to meditate on the Word of God, to be taught how to ask for forgiveness and how to extend forgiveness to others. All those things are important, but even if, even if we're not able, at least initially, to see the importance of these sorts of things, it is reason enough for us to obey just because Jesus calls us to do it. Jesus is the Lord, after all. He's the commander of all creation, so Jesus could say, this is the mission from God, go do it because I said so. He could say that, he has authority to say that, but he doesn't. Jesus gives us more than this. He actually gives us the reason The grounds for making disciples. And making disciples is part of an extension of his authority. Look in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. It's grounded in his authority. That means this. Jesus isn't just collecting new Christians like Beanie Babies. People still do that? I don't know if they still do that. Shouldn't do that. You know, it's not just like Jesus is clipping, you know, a little ear tag on him and sitting us on the shelf so that we look cute. Jesus is not just making converts. He's making disciples. He wants people who happily embrace his total authority and learn to observe practice all that he commands. So let me put it this way. Imagine a scene in which there's, there's a soccer team. Okay, and each of the players on the soccer team is given a jersey. They're part of the team. It's got their name on the back of the jersey. But they, they get no soccer practice training at all. And, and, and so they don't know how to dribble the soccer ball. They don't know pass plays. They don't know how to defend a shot to the goal. Maybe they don't even know the rules of the game at all. I don't know how skilled these soccer players are. And, and, and now they, here they come trotting out on the field and the game starts. There is chaos then on that field. And in that context, what would you think of their coach? You know, some people think that Jesus is just about saving Christians. Give us a jersey with this with our name on it, you know, we're on the team. But then gives us no training in holiness. We're free from the law, right? You know, if that were the case, the result of that is that we'd have a bunch of Christians in jerseys running around doing things like snapping in anger over small things. Oh, and then justifying it because I'm in the right. We'd see Christians expressing more passionate devotion for their their favorite political candidate than they ever express about their spouse or their church or about God. We'd see people making a huge stink about other people's sexual sins while we're secretly indulging our own We'd see people who care more about the borders of nations than about discipling the nations. We'd see people who just lay down on the grass and are content with prayerless, churchless, careless lives. And there's chaos on the field. Jesus steps into that and says, no, no, no. This whole soccer field is mine. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. The field is mine, and you are mine. So I'm going to do more than just hand out jerseys to mark you as mine. I'm going I'm to coach you on how to play well. I'm going to train you on how to live in a godly way. And then I want you to go and teach that same thing to others so that the world will see that I'm a God not of disorder and chaos, but a God of peace and love. The goal here is not just that we're that we're getting more people to bring into the church. The goal is this this increase of true disciples who would be a greater reflection of Jesus' authority on earth and of his coming kingdom. We, we want to become disciples who make disciples, not because we're moralistic and self-righteous and we want ourselves to look good. We want it to be involved in this mission of, of training and righteousness that ultimately comes from, from God, who is good, that it would change the landscape to add good to it. Jesus' mission of transformation here is big. I mean, we call it the Great Commission after all. But but the bigness of it is not meant to overwhelm us. It's to draw us again to Jesus. To be reminded of the sure and solid ground that Jesus really does have all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, go. Go. And make disciples in his name. Pray with me. Lord, what you've told us here is true and, well, challenging. But we do trust your authority to know that all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. So make this true of us now make us diligent to go that we would be disciple makers would you train us in righteousness help us to seek out training in righteousness that others would be trained in righteousness to the great end that you would be honored and glorified and that we would be blessed in the process thank you for your good gifts We do trust you and give you praise and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.